Our scripture lesson today comes from the book of Isaiah, and I'll be reading chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is what Isaiah, Amos' son, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of the mountains. It will be lifted above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will go and say, come, let us go up to the mountain, to the house of God, Jacob's God, so that he may teach us his ways and we might walk in God's paths. Instruction will come from Zion. The Lord's word from Jerusalem. God will judge between nations and settle disputes of mighty nations. They will beat their swords into iron plows and their spears into pruning tools. Nation will not take up sword against nation. They will no longer learn how to make war. Come, house of Jacob, let us walk by the Lord's light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You wouldn't be able to tell it from this passage of scripture, but things weren't very good in Israel. In fact, things were bad in Israel. Things were not good. Things were not rosy. Things were not going as planned. In fact, things were were not going as planned at all for Israel or, or for God for that matter when it came to Israel. Here's the situation that Israel found themselves in, in this particular time and place when Isaiah begins prophesying to the people of Judah. Israel to the north has been conquered. It's gone. The northern kingdom of Israel is gone, carried away into exile by the Assyrian army. And the Assyrian army hasn't left. It's not like they conquered the northern kingdom and said, yeah, that's enough. We'll go home now. The the people of Assyria, the the nation of Assyria, and, and the armies of Assyria are still very real threat to the people of Judah and really to the rest of the known world at that time. Assyria was a a war juggernaut. They they were the superpower of their age. They came, they saw, and they conquered. That's how it went for Assyria. Israel barely put up a fight in the north. And and not too long from now, and and even as it has already been, there have been kind of incursions of of the, the Assyrian armies into the territory of Judah. Things are tenuous. There is war all around. They are not in any ways safe from their enemies. And more so, the people of Judah are not exactly living up to the commitments that they have made to Yahweh God. If you were to turn back just one chapter, Isaiah chapter 1, the book opens with God saying some pretty nasty things about the people of Israel. All the more nasty because they're true. The people had turned away from Yahweh God. They were not doing the things that they had said they would do. They were not fulfilling the commitments that they had made to God and to one another. Things were bad. You wouldn't be able to tell it by reading Isaiah chapter 2. There were troubles in Israel. And in the midst of that trouble, and directly after prophesying some very, very, very hard things for the people of Israel to hear, this is what Isaiah comes up with next. He says, this is what he saw concerning the the land of Jacob, the people of Jerusalem. He said, days are coming when the mountain of the Lord's house will be raised above all other mountains, all other hills. In my mind, this is what comes to mind, right? That, that somehow Jacob, 
the people of Israel, the, the nation of Israel is, is raised above other nations. This is Everest, by the way, the tallest of all mountains, right? And, 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 and Isaiah says that, that in those days, what's going to happen is that, that Jacob, that Judah will be prominent among all the nations. And, and, and this is unique and unusual because the people come not because the, the people of Judah are great or good or even doing what they're supposed to do, but because the mountain of the Lord's house is raised above all nations. It says in Isaiah 2 that the nations will stream to the Lord's house, to the temple. That they will queue up for hours, if you will, to come and to learn, not from the people, not from preachers who may or may not have things right. But they will come and they will learn directly from the Lord. They will come to the Lord to receive instruction. Now, again, it's important to note what Isaiah doesn't say. This people of Judah are great and they will be teaching wonderful things. It says the mountain of the Lord's house will be lifted above nations, above all other nations, and the people will stream to it and they will say, let us learn instruction from the Lord. It's not the people who are raised up. It's not the people who go out and conquer in the name of God and establish this wonderful and mighty kingdom. It is something that is of God's doing and of God's doing alone. And what do the people come to learn from Jesus or from God, from the Lord? They come to learn instruction in Torah. They come to learn about how God would have them live Instruction will go forth. And and it says that people will come and they will go to the Lord to settle their differences. That that when it comes to disputes, whether it be international disputes or interpersonal disputes, that they will go and they will learn from the Lord and accept the Lord's judgment on these things. I just want you to think about that for a minute, what that means. People will willingly come and allow God, the Lord, Jesus, however you want to to put it in there to arbitrate their problems, right? Two siblings have a problem. Where do you go? (laughs) Not to the courts, not to lawyers, but to the Lord. And the Lord will settle differences. And, and, And Isaiah paints this picture that the Lord settles these differences and people are okay with it. Think of how amazing that is. Right? We might go to arbitration or we might go to court, but we may not like the verdict or trust the one giving it. Last couple of years in our nations have, have, have shown that, that systems have a whole lot of doubt in them. Right? We doubt elections. We doubt all sorts of other things. We wonder about the credibility of those who are making decisions. But what Isaiah says is there will be no question as to the credibility of the person making the decision that people will go to the Lord. And because people are going directly to God, that they're learning instruction from the Lord since they are going there and that they are trusting what the Lord has to say, there will be need of war, of dispute no longer. Right? In one of the most poignant and beautiful passages of scripture that's repeated elsewhere in Micah as well, it says they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. 
Isaiah paints this picture. Again, think about this picture for a moment. There is internal strife in in Judah and Jerusalem. There's no trust in their leaders. There's no trust in their religious leaders. The religious leaders oftentimes are leading them astray to other gods. And, and, And there's no trust in like the war process because Assyria is just conquering everybody. Things are bad. There is no safety. There is no peace. There is no internal or external peace. And what does Isaiah say? In the midst of all of that, he says, guys, a time is coming when they're going to turn our our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. That, That these weapons of destruction will be turned into implements of production. I mean, think of the cost to making war. What would happen if the collective national budgets of the superpowers in the world all went to producing food for the nations? What a world that would be. Billions and billions, trillions probably of dollars that, are, that, is, that is put into defense is all of a sudden put into production, to feeding, to helping, to providing for others. Imagine a world. And into this chaos, Isaiah says these things. And in fact, they will learn war no more. We've been learning war since time began, it seems. And Isaiah says and puts this out there to the people who are always prepared for war. They live in fortified cities. That a time is coming where these things won't be necessary anymore. Feels like good news, don't you think? It is. What's really behind all of this is this idea of justice and shalom that, that really permeates scripture. Right? So, so when, when God chooses Israel, he doesn't choose a people who are exceptional. He doesn't choose a people who are um, better or more moral than anybody else. He doesn't choose them for, for any other reason than they are this people that God has chosen. And God chooses this people and, and, and tells this guy, Abram, that, that in the end, his, his descendants will be like the st- stars in the sky. And and for some reason, God says, with your family, with this people, I am going to have a specific relationship with you so that you might bless the world, so that through you, the world will be blessed by me. And they have some troubled times, right? They go into exile. They're, they're, They're in Egypt for 400 years. And then God does something amazing and great and says, I have remembered you and brings them out of their slavery in Egypt and brings them to this mountain in the desert. And says at that mountain, I want to be your God. Would you like to be my people? It's essentially what happens at Sinai. God says, I want to be your God. I want to show you the wonders of of my grace so that you might show the wonders of my grace and love to the world around you. Would you like to be a part? That's what covenant is. God doesn't coerce it. God says, I want this. Do you want to covenant with me? And the people are like, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. Of course, right? And so God gives instruction on Sinai, what we know as the Torah, what we know as the law. It's God's instruction, which basically says, this is how to live with me and to live with one another. If you read it, it is quite spectacular. I I used to think as a kid, it was boring. I don't think it's boring anymore. I read it and I see God's work in grace in the midst of all of it. 
Let me give you some of my favorite examples. Built in to their system is a tithe, right? We, we might think of tithe as giving our 10% to the church, but, but in those particular days, the tithe was you tithed your, your, your production. When you grew grain, you tithed parts of it. When you, when you grew your grapes, you tithed parts of it. When you had animals, you tithed parts of it, a tenth part. And you brought it into the temple or the tabernacle before the temple was around and you gave it to the priest and you said something to the effect of my father was a wandering Aramean. He didn't have land. He didn't have flocks, but I'm giving this because God has graced us with all of this, which is pretty cool in the beginning because it's acknowledgement of what God does. But what happens next is awesome because then God says, guess what you're to do with all that stuff? Throw a party. He says, invite the poor, invite the lame, invite the widows, invite the orphans. All those people are unable to produce. They might have land. They might not be able to work, right? But all those people are the people who can't provide for themselves. And God says, bring them in, throw a party so that they will have enough to eat. That's a pretty cool thing about Torah, isn't it? That God builds into it a, a, a world whereby things are taken care of. People take care of one another, where, where we learn to settle disputes without killing, without violence, without et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The people had a hard time keeping Torah. But when, when Isaiah says that out of the Lord's house shall go forth instruction, this is what it means, that, that out of God's house, however this is going to happen, however God is going to do it, that God is teaching the nations what it means to live not only with God, who created us, who's the really a good person to tell us what it means to live and how to live, but also how they might live with one another well. So much so that instead of keeping the sword at home and just in case, we can turn our swords into plowshares. It is a pretty dramatic and dynamic vision that Isaiah gives. The only problem is sometimes it seems like it's too Pollyanna, too optimistic. We are, well, let's say this happened, I don't know, in the 6th century BC, maybe the 8th century BC. It's 3,000 years later. And some of us look around and go, God, where is it? I mean, I don't know about you, but I read the paper or I read news online and I go, it doesn't seem like we have given up learning war. I mean, if you were to look over the Ukraine right now, we haven't given up learning war. We haven't given up preparing. If you were to look at our national budget, we have not given up preparing for war, have we? Where is this promise that God brought? Is there any hope for us? Can we really read these things and go, yeah, it, it can be true. It, you know, after World War I and during World War I, some people thought that it was so bad and so catastrophic that it would be the war to end all war, Right? That all these nations killing one another, just unprecedented carnage and death, surely after that, we would learn war no more, right? Not so much. After World War II, some nations had a good idea. Said, 
let's make this body of people who, who's a bunch of nations coming together. Let's, let's come together and let's, let's try to settle our disputes without having war anymore. We have NATO, the United Nations, things like that. Did you know that in front of, uh, this, I'm on the wrong slides. Okay, there we go. Do you know that in front of the United Nations, on the building is inscribed this verse that we just read? They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. We tried. People have tried. Tried to come together and say war is not good. It doesn't matter whether you like it or not. War is not good for anybody. Right? People die and we don't want people to die. Surely there's a better way to, to settle our differences. And, and they came together as the United Nations says, let's do this. Let's come together and let's talk it out. Right? Let's put the war college out of business. However many years later, it hasn't happened yet. Is there any hope? Because it's a compelling vision. I get goosebumps when I read this. I don't know about you. I am not so cynical yet as to read past this and not get goosebumps that God has been and will be doing something. Of course, as Christians, we hold out a different sort of hope, or at least a, an expanded hope than what Isaiah talks about here. We know that throughout the New Testament, the scripture writers, Paul and the New Testament writers, talk about Jesus as a turning, pivotal point in history. Right? It's announced at his birth, the Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. There is something in this Christ child that we anticipate, this, this time of year that we anticipate that says these things are possible. And all throughout Jesus' life with his ministry, with his disciples, there were, there were questions of, is this the time? Could this be it? Because this, is this when God's going to do all these things? <coughs> throughout his life, his disciples were expecting him to take his throne in Jerusalem. And you know what Jesus did? He suffered, he died, and he rose again. And when Jesus was raised to new life, one of the first discussions his disciples had with him, guess what it was? Is now the time you will return the kingdom to Israel? They had hope. They hoped even beyond everything they had seen that this was the time. And throughout history, people have been preparing and waiting and looking and longing for and hoping that God would fully and finally bring God's own kingdom. So where is our hope? One of the things that I love about the New Testament is it causes us to revisit our hopes and what they mean. That throughout the New Testament, we read about this Jesus about the way he lived his life, about the way he rejected violence, the way he rejects the idea that the kingdom of God comes by force and, and shows us a way to live that is following the instruction, that is going to the mountain of the Lord. And the New Testament writers look ahead and promise that there is a time when Jesus will come again and bring his kingdom in its fullness and its finalness. Advent is about waiting. 
You might notice if you've been around here a while or if you're around here quite a bit for the next four weeks, we won't sing much Christmas music. Why is that? Because Advent's about waiting. It's a forced waiting on my part, and I get it. I make you do that. But it's this tension, this anticipation, this hope that we have that something else is coming. We anticipate, we hope, we desire to see the fullness of God's kingdom. And so we, we, we starve ourselves from the, from the Christmas music that's going on all around us or even what we learn, listen to at home and we come here and we wait in anticipation of Christmas Eve where we will sing together and celebrate anew the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ because we hope. We are a people who live in the already of Christ's death and resurrection but in the not yet as we await for his return and the fullness and the finalness of God's kingdom. The kingdom that we read about in, in various places, but Revelation has it best when the, when the new Jerusalem comes out of, out of heaven and lands on earth and the nations stream to it to learn from the Lord. We live in the already of Jesus' reality and Jesus conquering even death by his own death and resurrection and yet the not yet of the kingdom of God as we await for the day when we will learn no, war no more. The day where, right, the things that destroy will be turned into things that rebuild. It's a day that we wait for and we live in the tension of hope. A hope, as we heard in that intro video this morning, a hope that is, it's not Pollyanna, it's not some sort of optimism. It's not crunching the numbers and saying, yeah, it all works out. It's not even saying this is a practical way of being. It's a, it's a hope that is grounded in the example and in the promise of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. It's the hope that is grounded in the word made flesh in God who dwells among us. You might notice the last little thing that Isaiah says in this passage of scripture is come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. I'm going to go, it's not too far out on a limb here, but I'm going to tell you what I think that means. Others may disagree, that's okay. But I think I'm pretty well grounded in my opinion here. So when we talk about walking in the light of the Lord, what I hear when I hear that, what I, what I think that is conveying to, to even the people of Israel as it was then and, and to us now who live sort of in this post-resurrection reality as, as we say God has conquered death in Christ and yet we wait for God to be here in God's own fullness. It means that here and now we act as if the future is here. We are a people who wait. We are a people who wait in hope that the world will eventually catch up that what has been foretold, what has been prophesied by Isaiah and others will eventually come to pass. It's a hope that is grounded in Jesus Christ who shows us how to live. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in this revelation that God has shown us. What would it mean if, if just the church, if we committed to living in the ways of this future that Isaiah describes here and now, what would it look like? What would it look like if we walked in Jesus' ways of peace? 
if we said that the way that our disputes get settled is not through the courts, not through lawyers, but by the Lord himself, what would it mean if we allowed our disputes to be settled by the laws of love rather than something else? Some good people might be out of business, but we might look different. What would the church look like if we decided to learn war no more? What would the church look like if if we decided, at least as a body, to say, let us beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks? What would this world look like? I think some people would call us foolish. It is not practical. The way of the Lord is not practical, nor has God ever said it was. The way of Christ is not practical. Jesus never said it was. But we are called nonetheless to live and to walk in the light of the Lord. John says, if we would have fellowship with him, we must walk as he walked. Now, there's lots of different interpretations of what that might mean to walk as Jesus walked. But it would certainly look different than a lot of people around us. What would happen if we lived in such hope that we were willing to embody the vision of the future here and now? What would it mean if we lived like that even as we waited for the world around us to catch up? Might we get hurt sometimes? Yeah. Might we get taken advantage of? Sure. But the way of the Lord was never said to be safe. Imagine Israel hearing this. Let us walk as if these realities are true, but Assyria is knocking on our doorstep. What are we to do? Open the Lord, I suppose. What would it look like if we chose to wait, not as people sitting on our hands saying, we'll just do whatever we do, acting like everyone else around us until Jesus comes and sets it all straight. What if we committed here and now as an act of defiant hope to walk in the ways that he has shown us to walk? Testifying corporately and individually that we believe what Jesus and God has said is true, even to the point of doing things that seem crazy in living in the ways that he has called us. What if we were to embody the light of the Lord in living the Sermon on the Mount? We'd look weird, strange, crazy. But such... It is to walk, I think, in the light of the Lord. I think this scripture is powerful enough that it probably works as the best closing to a sermon than I can think of. I don't want the last word to be mine on this one. I'm hoping the last word will be Isaiah's, and ultimately we believe it's inspired, so God's. And so as I read it again... I want to encourage you to begin to think of what it might look like if we, as individuals who belong to Christ and as corporate people who belong to Christ, were to walk 
in these ways, here and now, as an act of defiant hope. This is what Isaiah, Amos' son, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days to come, the mountains of the Lord's house will be the highest of mountains. It will be lifted above the hills and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will go and say, come, let us go up to the Lord's mountain, to the house of Jacob's God, so that he may teach us his ways and we might walk in God's paths. Instruction will come from Zion, the Lord's word from Jerusalem. God will judge between nations and settle disputes of mighty nations. They will beat their swords into iron plows and their spears into pruning tools. Nation will not take up sword against nation. And they will no longer learn how to make war. Come, house of Jacob. Come, people of God. Let us walk by the Lord's light. The worship team is going to come back up and we're going to sing a final song. For this hope is not grounded. I hope in the word of some guy who told you from a pulpit. This word and this hope is grounded in nothing less than God's promise of a different future where we will make war no more. And he calls us to walk in the Lord's light.